0: I'm John Cook, and you're listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, the real ESP experience.
1: You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode 210. I'm your host András Pintér, and joining me for the show is my co-host Pontus Bergman. See ya! Hey San hey San András. Oh, I'm back in Hungary. Yeah. yeah made it back made it back hopefully without contracting the coronavirus the novel coronavirus of 2019 yeah you weren't convinced by the acupuncturists
2: and the other people (laughs) that you were (laughs) traveling with so you're not converted to the other
1: side now no i'm afraid not (laughs) <laughs> that would take much more than what they had uh- <laughs> <laughs> would be quite quite a blow for the
2: podcast as well we would have to change our total uh, agenda
1: but... yeah who knows uh we might we might end up being uh, the, the 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 esp podcast in the sense of uh talking about exosensory perception sure absolutely we usually
2: say that to be a skeptic you have to have a very open mind and change your mind if you get new evidence so we're we're ready to learn and we're ready to understand what we did wrong all these years but not yet you have to convince us first <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah yeah this is this, this is what goes in my family actually now now they they're starting to realize that this is the case and i have to admit that um, as as an adolescent i was just an unbearably arrogant fucker who was impossible to convince <laughs> about anything and uh it has changed definitely in what way <laughs> that uh i'm more than happy to admit that i am wrong if i'm presented with uh, enough evidence and uh, yeah. but only then so mm-hmm. i'm not going to going to give in just because just i want to play nice no nope. if i'm not convinced then sorry, yeah, you were not good enough to convince me.
2: So I guess we will have to go on poking the Pope and all the other stuff uh, as usual. Yeah, yeah, probably.
1: <laughs> not this week though, because we
2: have a great interview with John Cook coming up. But, yeah, that's uh, right. It is a little bit, and that's a great interview. But I, it's a little bit unfortunate that just the day before our previous episode came out, Pope Francis finally spilled the beans on what he thought about uh, celibacy in the Amazon, the one we've been waiting for for months. And now you listeners will have to wait yet another week to hear at least my take on that, Mm -hmm. because we haven't had time to analyze that yet. Uh, And it will come. You put out quite a teaser there. (laughs) Yes. Call forward, uh, the episode 211 will be about uh, what Francis thinks about celibacy, so uh, it'll be interesting. So tune in for that, but stay for this interview as well, because that was a very interesting talk that we just had with John Cook about climate change and his new book and his take on the whole thing and how you can at least try to debunk people's misconceptions about uh, climate change. And I think about other things as well. I think you can take learnings from him and apply it on other areas as well.
1: Yeah, I think they have a a wider validity Mm -hmm. than than only climate change, yeah. Mm. And uh, one of the great concepts that we can use this for is uh, pre-bunking, actually. Mm, Yes. And uh, it's a great book. We were uh, fortunate enough to have a bit of a... Sneak peek. A sneak peek into it, yes. But uh, I do recommend it mm. to to everyone out there who's a skeptic and and who's ever had a cranky uncle or a <laughs> character like that yes. to to try and convince uh, that climate change is real. Yeah. And uh, by the way, what what John does uh, with his team on skeptical science is absolutely amazing skeptical science is probably the greatest online portal on climate science Uh, you will not be able to find um, a collection of information articles scientific data and handbooks actually because Mm -hmm. that's where you can download the debunking handbook the uncertainty handbook and all those useful materials so uh check that out as well of course uh, we will link to that that website uh, as well on the show notes as well as um, a link to the the amazon page of uh, cranky uncle versus climate change so without further ado i think we should crack on with that interview yes Every now and then, we interview someone whose life and or work as a sceptic might be interesting to our listeners and definitely has a European angle to it, either through representing a country on the old continent or a project stretching across borders. Today our guest is Australian cognitive scientist John Cook, who is a research assistant professor at the Centre for Climate Change Communication at George Mason University in the US and is mostly known as the founder of the climate science portal Skeptical Science, which uh, won the 2011 Australian Museum Eureka Prize for the Advancement of Climate Change Knowledge and also the 2016 Friend of the Planet Award from the National Center for Science Education in the US. He has co-authored two textbooks on climate change and a couple of handbooks that can prove very useful to skeptics who often find themselves in the middle of arguments over anthropogenic climate change. Those titles include Climate Change Denial, Heads in the Sand, the debunking handbook that has been translated to many different languages, and his latest book is Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change that is coming out on the 25th of February. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andrews.
0: Uh, it's great to be here. Yeah,
1: thanks for joining us. Well, I think if we are uh, looking for a connection, a European connection to what you do and your work, You're a climate change communication expert, and uh, it has relevance to all of us, obviously. But you've got quite a few European connections as well, your project, uh, including the debunking handbook that I uh, mentioned earlier. And this is where we started corresponding. And you just pointed out when we were chatting before the recording that it was in 2011 that that happened that came out the debunking handbook that has been translated to many european languages so uh but since then you've 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 done quite a few things but you are not a climate scientist per se you are a cognitive scientist aren't you
0: yes when people ask me what i do I used to say I work on climate change, and and often I would their eyes yeah. would kind of glaze over. andreol, yeah. Montreal, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, these days <laughs> I often say I research how people think about climate change, which often yeah. uh, gets people uh, much more interested because we all like yeah. to think about how people think.
1: And h- how did it come about? I mean, as a cognitive scientist, how did you end up researching how people think about climate change Uh, Specifically? Well, it
0: actually happened in reverse. I began by starting the website Skeptical Science uh, Mm -hmm. in 2007. And the purpose of the website was quite simple debunking climate misinformation with peer reviewed science. And Mm -hmm. I came at it as someone with a background in physical science. I studied physics at university. I I was very much familiar with natural science and had uh, experience in reading natural science papers but I knew nothing about social science or psychology or the science of science communication. And it wasn't until I received an email from a social scientist, Stefan Lewandowski, who now is in in Bristol in the UK, that he uh, notified me of the psychological research into debunking misinformation. And it, it turns out that email was a life changer because it started me down the road of, learning and researching the science of science communication, uh, ultimately um, resulting in me getting a PhD in cognitive science and now researching climate communication for
1: a living. And along the way, you've, you've built up quite a career in that and large amount of knowledge about how people communicate and how people understand climate change and how they misunderstand climate change. What were the greatest surprises that you've encountered Well, the first big surprise was
0: learning that sometimes the science is not enough. Trying to counter science denial or pseudoscience with science is necessary but insufficient. And the reason why is because of just the complexities of human psychology. Throwing more data at people uh, can often be either unproductive or even counterproductive, especially when the scientific information is perceived to threaten them either threaten their identity threaten their worldview threaten their social identity and in those situations the science can actually end up um, backfiring and and causing people to double down on their pseudoscientific beliefs and so what that means is we need to be mindful of the social science research into how people think about scientific issues and how to best communicate uh, about scientific issues. And that's, and that light bulb moment for me was ultimately what changed my life and, and led me down the path of social science
1: and and it goes even deeper than that right so that it's much deeper than just the science and and the, uh, how people perceive science and uh how they they see the data that the raw data because there are very deep social connections social issues social uh phenomena going on in the background of uh, uh, emotional changes uh, emotional challenges that we have to overcome if if we want to well try to argue against pseudoscientific issues or or we want to, to try to defend the science uh, behind climate change
0: um, yeah and i guess um a concrete example can be helpful so my field is how people think about climate change and Uh, There's been a lot of research and when you pull it all together, what we find is the biggest driver of people's beliefs about climate change isn't their level of education, it not their science literacy, uh, it's not their income level, it's not their gender or age. The biggest driver by far of people's attitudes about climate change is their political affiliation, who they vote for, what political tribe they belong to. And so people's beliefs about climate change, their attitudes, their, how they f- think about the greenhouse effect, you know, basic scientific uh, processes, is
1: determined by who they vote for. Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it true across the complete world political landscape or is it not mostly something that is true in the United States where the two big parties are going against each other and clashing all the time or uh, is it true in every country in every political situation it varies across the countries
0: uh, mm-hmm. like
1: uh, some some countries worse than
0: others and certainly it's worse in the US But there was some interesting research from some of my former colleagues at the University of Queensland, Matthew Hornsey, who looked at the level of polarisation. In other words, how much does politics Mm -hmm. affect people's beliefs about climate change? Where is it strongest and what might be driving it? And they found that polarisation was strongest in countries that depended the most on fossil fuels for their their energy mix. (laughs) And what they concluded was that... Misinformation, fueled, pardon the pun, by um, the fossil fuel companies is the driver of polarization. Uh, over decades, uh, misinformation has been pouring out from various groups, but ultimately funded and amplified by money from the fossil fuel industry. And all this misinformation um, bombarding the public have, over decades, polarized the public. Um, particularly in those countries where they've got hit with misinformation the most. Mm.
2: So if you look at other countries then and, and other areas, maybe also outside of climate change, because there are other pseudosciences out there and other polarizations, uh, is that very different? Is is climate change denial or climate change controversy a very special topic or does it have things in common with other denial? Uh, the answer is yes and
0: no. Um, certainly there are things that all areas of science denial share in common and those are the techniques of denial when you have overwhelming scientific evidence but you want to deny the body of evidence you have to rely on certain techniques like cherry picking and conspiracy theories and reliance on fake experts and i we can come back to that later because a lot of my research has focused on um, understanding these techniques and then inoculating people against the techniques But uh, also different areas of science denial can be uh, quite different in that they have different drivers. Um, The reason why someone would deny the scientific consensus on evolution is very different from the reason why they would deny climate change. With climate change, it's all because of the solution to solving climate change involves reducing pollution and often that involves regulating industry. And so it's people whose... economic beliefs about regulating industry uh, it's that ideology that free market fundamentalism which drives climate denial but that doesn't really have anything to do with denying evolution or or why people would believe in creationism that that comes from religious ideology Uh, and so while often the two groups can overlap often political conservatives are also social conservatives uh ultimately there's there's different drivers behind those types of science denial.
2: But fundamentally it's about protecting your worldview, isn't it? So if you're defending an idea like capitalism or whatever, or and you're defending your religion, it's still a of some sort of belief that is challenged, your identity is challenged.
0: Yes, that's a that's a good point. So um it could be a world view, it could also be a social identity. Um, as in your your tribe, your social group, um, all believes this one thing. And therefore, if you are to, just, just say, for instance, you belong to a social group that denies some particular aspect of science, and then someone presents to you very compelling scientific data that disproves the denial position, if you are to accept that scientific information, uh, you run the risk of being excluded from your social group. Uh, and that comes at a great personal cost. So there are there are strong motivations that can cause people to deny science. And uh, while it seems irrational from a social point of view, it's, it's kind of rational because if you're going to suffer this great personal cost by accepting the science, social pressures are, are some of the biggest psychological drivers that people face.
1: And this is why once uh, some kind of belief is there, it's it's much more difficult to counter that than trying to keep it from developing in the first place, right? So this is where the idea of inoculation comes from, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, there that.
0: is some research that indicates that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. In other words, if you can get in there before the misinformation gets out there, then you can preemptively stop people from getting Influenced by the misinformation in the first place, and so that idea of preemptive debunking or prebunking is something that researchers, including myself, have been looking at more and more. And the framework that we adopt in in conducting our research uh, is inoculation theory, which is research going back to the 1950s, where psychology researchers took the idea of vaccination which involves exposing people to a weak form of a disease in order to build up immunity against the real disease. And psychology research has found that the same principle applies to misinformation. If you expose people to a weak form of misinformation, that helps them build up immunity or resistance so that when they encounter the actual misinformation, they don't get influenced. Hmm. And I've tested that approach uh, in my own research this was the main research i did in my uh, phd and found that explaining the techniques of denial essentially neutralizes uh, misinformation about climate change
1: mm-hmm. but your latest book cranky uncle is basically a proverbial figure uh, a character that we we all know from our lives uh, someone who's who's in massive And very strong denial, in a state of a very strong denial, about climate change or whatever else. But uh, you're focusing on climate change. And that book really lists a lot of the arguments and the possible counter-arguments and how you can approach that but somehow the person who reads it has the feeling that it it might have some kind of an autobiographical touch <laughs> to it as well so i understand that most of it is based on your research your your professional research uh but uh so how much is it autobiographically driven
0: <laughs> well i mean where the personal anecdotes end and the research starts is a very gray area. <laughs> so,
1: okay, okay. That's how, I, that's how it felt, yeah.
0: Uh, and there was, a, there was one moment while writing the book where I was explaining the slippery slope fallacy. And, and in, in my little sketchbook, I was just writing down possible examples of slippery slope. And it was just very generic examples that you might see in the world. And then I thought of a thing that my dad said after I um, finished my physics degree and i announced to my parents i think i'm going to uh, rather than do a phd in physics i think i'm going to become a cartoonist instead and my dad was horrified and he said son <laughs> if you don't do your phd you'll end up living on the streets uh, living in uh, <laughs> dressed in torn jeans and i thought that's the perfect example of slippery slope fallacy so i drew a caricature of my dad as he looked at the time and how i looked at the time i had much more hair back then and it actually felt really good drawing it like i just got a lot of satisfaction out of debunking my dad and so then i started thinking what else has my dad said that i can draw a cartoon about and debunk in this book And, and then i thought maybe i shouldn't be treating this book as a um you know, personal therapy, and I decided to not try to draw my dad anymore and concentrated on the climate science. Yeah,
2: but the, the, it is a cartoon book in a way. Uh, so maybe you should describe how how it what it looks like and how you why you took that approach. So it's probably helpful to know how I got to
0: doing this book in the first place. After I came out of my PhD, the main I guess answer I got from my PhD was the way to stop climate misinformation, or any form of misinformation, is inoculation. But then the question was, well, how do you do that? And I started working with some critical thinking philosophers at the University of Queensland, Peter Allerton and David Kinkeed, and they introduced me to the idea of parallel argumentation, uh, which involves taking the flawed logic from a, some misinformation and transplanting that logic into a parallel situation. Usually something extreme or absurd, a bit ridiculous. And the more extreme it is, the more obvious it is that the logic is flawed. So for example, an original misinformation argument is, it's cold, therefore global warming isn't happening, which happens that argument happens more often than you would think. Uh, But that logic, it's cold, I feel cold right now, right here, therefore global warming isn't happening, is the same logic as arguing at nighttime it's dark, therefore the sun doesn't exist. Just because what you're (laughs) experiencing in the here and now, that doesn't mean that it's happening everywhere. Uh, You need to look at the big picture. And uh, once I was introduced to this idea of parallel argumentation, um, having, I guess, moved from cartooning into doing scientific research into communication, I realized that cartoons were the perfect delivery mechanism for parallel arguments. So I started taking the climate myths that I'd been debunking on Skeptical Science and in my research uh, and identifying parallel arguments for each one and drawing cartoons um, visualizing these these different ways of exposing the fallacies in misinformation. And over time, I collected more and more cartoons and then compiled it into this book, Cranky Uncle versus Climate Change, uh, which is basically debunking the most common myths about climate change, explaining the climate science, but also explaining the fallacies uh, in the misinformation using cartoons Mm.
1: I I really like the little boxes. On every chapter um, on the side of the the page, you will see a little box with the actual fact that science has to say about the phenomenon, uh, the myth that surrounds it, and the fallacy that is used to propagate the myth. And uh, that structure... I found not only very refreshing, but it's really good to see that so well connected because it makes you comprehend the whole the whole issue much, much deeper. And it's a quick reference kind of thing as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you really summed it up. It sums up the whole issue. Whenever you have misinformation and facts competing against each other, the danger is that uh, for someone who's seeing these facts and myths together, if they don't know how to uh, resolve the conflict between the two, if they don't know which is fact and which is myth, Mm -hmm. then the risk is that they disengage um, and just stop believing in either. And um, some of the best research on this actually comes from someone you've interviewed in the past, Sander van der Linden, Mm -hmm. who Mm -hmm. uh, ran an experiment where he showed people information about climate change, he showed them misinformation about climate change, and he and he found that when he showed them both, they cancelled each other out and people stopped believing in the fact. And so um, what you need to do to resolve that problem is help people resolve the conflict between fact and myth. German philosophers from, I think, the 1800s call this hypothesis, antithesis, synthesis. Mm. You have the hypothesis, the fact, you have the antithesis, the myth, But then you need to synthesize them or resolve the conflict between the two. And the way you do that is by explaining the fallacy or the denial technique that the myth uses to distort the facts. Once people understand the fallacy, uh, they're able to pull it all together and understand how fact and myth can coexist at the same time.
1: All of a sudden, it starts making sense. Yeah.
2: So doing this in the form of cartoon where you actually... You make a little bit of fun of this cranky uncle. He's a fun guy in his crankiness and all that. How do you feel, and your research maybe have looked into this, how do you feel about using ridicule in as an educational uh, basis? Is it productive or can it sometimes backfire? Well, I
0: don't think that this book is going to be terribly effective with cranky uncles um, because mm-hmm. of that reason. <laughs> but it's important to point out that... Um, Cranky uncles aren't the target audience. And and this, this is a more broader and important communication point. Whenever I give talks to audiences, whether they're academic or the general public, I almost always get asked, how do you change a climate deniers mind? And the answer I give is that a better question is who should we be targeting rather than what should we be saying to climate deniers? Because... The Cranky Uncles, the climate deniers, only comprise, at least in the US, where they're the biggest proportion, but even in the US, they're only like 10% of the population. 90% of the population uh, are not deniers, and they don't respond to climate information with conspiracy theories and denial. And, in fact, in the US, 58% of the the public uh, are concerned about climate change. They're on board with the science. Mm. And so... The answer, I think, to the question, how should we approach communication about climate change? And I think to answer your question is there are two main audiences that we need to really focus on about climate change. One is the, I think, about 30% of the population who are disengaged or or confused about climate change. And we need to help them make sense of all the Cranky Uncle arguments and make sense of all the climate information. Um, so that's one target audience for my, um, p- my book. The other target audience is the 58% of at least the US public who are concerned about climate change. But most of those people don't ever talk about the issue with their family and friends. There's this pervading climate silence where we don't uh, speak about it with either our own social networks or, more importantly, with our elected officials. And so politicians aren't hearing from the public, even from the people who do care about climate change. They're not hearing that people care about this issue and vote accordingly. And so another goal of this book is helping activate the concerned about climate change, the 58%, and even just getting them feeling confident enough and empowered to talk about the issue because... Once they understand the cranky uncle's arguments and the denial techniques, it actually gives people more confidence mm. to talk about the issue.
2: Yeah, and and also giving them the facts, right? Because sometimes you feel you know you're convinced no climate change is happening and then you get a very pertinent question and you can't answer it. It's maybe it's good to have read your book before that, because it's it's a quite long book and you go into detail into a lot of lot of things.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, it end, ended up being 176 pages. Uh, originally, yeah. it was going to be much shorter than that, uh, but I kept oh, I'd like to do that. Oh, this would be a good thing to talk about, yeah. and it get, kept getting bigger and bigger until the my publisher's editor said, "That's it. <laughs> 176 is the cap. You can't say any more than that."
1: Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs>
2: But there's a lot of pictures in it, right? So uh, text-wise, it's not it's not a hard read in that. No, I, I, like the
0: first draft of the book was much more text-heavy, but I was very conscious of the fact that like every climate book that exists to that point was was just very text-heavy and, and there was no shortage of information out there. What we need is the disengaged to um, be engaging with the content. And so I made the very conscious decision to try to make the each page as visual and as much cartoons as possible to the point where I only budgeted for myself one or like basically two paragraphs of text to explain every scientific concept. Greenhouse effects, two paragraphs. Carbon cycle, two paragraphs. Mm. And that was a real challenge to um Yeah, it must have been, to, yeah. To to like I think there's a line from Mark Twain, although every old quote has been attributed to Mark Twain. So I don't know if he ever actually said it or not. But it was, um, <laughs> I don't have time to write you a short letter, so I'm going to write you a long letter instead. Yes. It takes time being concise and, and brief. Um, yeah. but, but from a communication point of view, it's really worth investing that time in order to write content that people will actually read.
1: And the, the, the graphics and the design, the, the, the look of the whole thing helps in that as well. So this c- uh, cartoon format, I think it works perfectly uh, because it keeps you engaged for, for a long time, uh, even though it's occasionally you have the feeling while reading through it that, yeah, now I need to process all this information. <laughs> I, I've got a couple of great examples and, and a couple of favourites. But I think one that needs to be mentioned is it's, it's, uh, how confirmation bias works. Uh, and it's 16 cartoon pictures. Well, I think 15 of them is, shows people talking to the cranky uncle and telling him how the the climate is changing, the Earth is warming, and he just either doesn't react or denies the whole thing and then one person says that it's a hoax and then he goes yeah i knew it this is it doesn't it doesn't work in this format i just did (laughs) explaining it all Uh, so this is why it works in the in the pictured format in in the cartoon Uh, so you have to just see the book uh, and it's it's amazing it's funny you should say that because
0: like the book comes out on February 25th and then there's book events planned for after that and I'm thinking right now how do you do a book reading for a cartoon
1: (laughs) book yeah (laughs) Yeah, you don't you probably don't yeah (laughs) So that the drawings and the graphics work very very well and and the explanatory graphics as well when you explain the climate change and how the different uh, directions of the of the, the heat waves and the energy flux it's great I think it helps the case but uh, it's important to mention you already briefly mentioned that that it's your work the cartoons themselves so the drawings, are your work as well, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: I drew everything in the book. Well, I, I drew all the cartoons, but I should point out you mentioned the design earlier. My wife is a graphic designer, and she came up with mm-hmm. the the structure of like the actual look of the pages, the way yeah. the um all the all the layouts. She designed that, so credit where credit is due. Mm
1: yeah yeah, and, in, and it is indeed because uh it's very well done so you basically managed to go against your father's will. will
2: yeah <laughs> and, no you combined both the phd and the cartoon
1: yeah, thing yeah. yeah basically yes yes yeah oh sorry yeah 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 my my completely.
0: dad right now is smug as hell because <laughs> um it, it wasn't till after i finished my phd that i, I was able to you know, get a a professor position at an American university. And, and, you know, my dad's like, oh, right. Guess I was right about getting that PhD, huh? Mm -hmm. So, um, (laughs) so.
1: (laughs) But we have to mention one more thing about the book because it's not only a book that you've been working on. There is word and even articles published about it that a game is available as well or will be available that is... uh, like an extension of the book or how should we um, imagine that? So I finished the book. I actually completed the manuscript in
0: uh, October 2018 and handed Mm -hmm. it over to the publisher. And then they told me, well, um, thank you. Uh, We will work on this now, but it won't come out till February 2020. And I was like, well, that is a long time away. What am am I going (laughs) to do between now and then? And – I started thinking about this game and, t- and talking with my designer wife, who's an extremely creative person. Uh, we we started to um, think about how could you take the content from this, game, uh, from this book and gamify it? And that got me reading about the research into gamification, which I uh, Ooh, yeah. wasn't even aware of until now. And there is a whole body of literature on that as well. And it was really exciting. What I learned was that Gamification is a really powerful way to teach, uh, especially in the classroom. So I started developing a prototype of a game and talking to um, mainly climate scientists about it. And what really struck me was how excited educators were about any type of resource that could get the students interacting um, with the content. And uh, so before I even knew it, but without even trying, there were classrooms across the U.S. who were uh, keen to test this game in prototype form. And so I I rushed, or not rushed, but I I quickly uh, developed a, a prototype that students could play and started getting it into these classrooms across the U.S., all over the country, from east coast to west coast, and through some research around it, tested how effective the game was in... Uh, improving the students' abilities to detect misinformation and detect different fallacies in different arguments and found that just 30 minutes of playing this simple prototype was enough to significantly increase their ability to detect fallacies and make them more resilient against misinformation. So this happened over the course of 2019. And then in December, having taken the prototype as far as it could go, I knew that the next step was to actually... Program the game, uh, do proper development, so that it would work as a native iPhone or Android uh, app. So we did a crowdfunding campaign to raise the money to develop both versions of the app, uh, and I think we started in uh, be- at the beginning of December. By New Year's Eve, we'd raised enough money to develop both the iPhone and the Android version. Uh, but wow. but the the mo- the next step was. We were very keen to create a multilingual version. Uh, it's in Skeptical Science, um, we have a team member, Babel Winkler um, from Germany. She's like an incredible champion for translation. She's basically responsible for Skeptical Science and Debunking Handbook and, and other stuff that we've published being translated yeah. into a whole range of languages. And, and I think that uh, you mentioned earlier uh, that there's a lot of European translations. I think that's mm-hmm. probably because of Bebel and her European connections. Uh, yeah. And so what we uh, were keen on was to create a a version of the game that could be translated into other languages. We knew that if we could do the programming, it was a lock. The first up would be a German version because um, Bebel's German translation team is uh, amazing. Uh, and then it would just <laughs> be a matter of time before other translations became available. Uh, And happily, we reached that fundraising goal on the last day of the crowdfunding campaign. (laughs) Uh, And so we met our three goals to create an Android version, an iPhone version, and then a multilingual version. And we're hoping to start, uh, we're we're just beginning development now. We're hoping that the first version of the game will be out in June. Mm
2: great
1: wow okay looking forward to that and uh yeah we would be we would be happy to welcome you back uh when when it comes out and if you want to promote that and uh and want to talk about that that would be absolutely amazing and uh just an idea uh, now that you mentioned uh badball we when we did the hungarian translation of the re- uh, debunking handbook we corresponded with her as well mostly with her because she was coordinating it uh, brilliantly And obviously, you on Skeptical Science is a website. You will, uh, and anyone can see the debunking handbook and the uncertainty handbook as well. As well, you you don't have much to do with that one i believe but uh, it's still mostly the the same team that that usually works together in the, the skeptical science projects right
0: uh, the yeah. common link between the debunking handbook and the uncertainty handbook is stefan lewandowski.
1: lewandowski yeah mm-hmm. yeah
0: and so i think that the first thing or well, basically when he first emailed me and said hey there's this research into debunking that you should be aware of I, once I started looking at the papers I said to him this research is amazing but has anyone summarized it you know you know in a short concise practical guide that that practitioners like myself could rely on and no one had done that and so Steve and I uh, put together the debunking handbook uh, we published it and then it just went um, viral hundreds of thousands of downloads um, mm-hmm. and And it was so successful that Steve um, was keen to replicate the success and that led him to creating the Uncertainty Handbook with some of his British colleagues. Uh, And currently we're now working on a conspiracy theory handbook which we're hoping to release in April.
1: Okay, quite busy
0: times, I have to say. (laughs) It's going to be a big year 2020, I think.
1: Oh, well, in the US definitely will be. (laughs) By the way, Donald Trump is featured in the book Cranky Uncle. What about other world leaders? How alone is he among world leaders with uh, with this denialism of his? Yeah, that's um, a that's a good question.
0: Um, well, certainly the U.S. Republican Party is one off, if not the only political party that is openly denying climate science. Um, that's yeah. that they are a bit of an outlier. Uh, the Australian Prime Minister has a history of climate denial and the Australian Conservative Party, which confusingly I, I called the Liberal Party, that there's there are certainly climate denial elements in their group, although in that party, although they are um, less vocal about in, in openly denying the science. Um, but again' it's, it's those it's that cluster of countries, the US, Australia, the UK and to a lesser degree Canada and New Zealand where climate denial is most prevalent. Mm.
1: So that means that uh, European countries do quite well in that regard?
0: Yes. Uh, we look at Europe with some kind of wistful envy, <laughs> 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 wishing that our leaders were uh, as enlightened as yours.
2: Mm.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, well, there there are a couple of countries that are, have leaders, quite enviable ones, that, that we want to have. Yeah.
2: yeah. Speaking of, of the U.S. in particular, I my impression is that it hasn't always been that the Republican Party was in very much denial of climate change. Is, is that right? Has it changed?
0: Well, there's a cartoon in the book where I uh, draw George H.W. Bush in the um, late 1980s saying mm-hmm. that he would fight the greenhouse effect with the White House effect you can't um, imagine a leader of the Republican Party making that statement nowadays so there certainly has been a intensification of the degree of polarization in the US and uh, and when you look at survey data you you see that polarization like over several decades the republicans and the democrats have gotten further and further apart on climate change and there's a a lot of research into this growing polarisation. And I've kind of alluded to it before, but what the research suggests is that misinformation is the driver of this um, polarisation. It it didn't happen naturally, organically. Being polarised about climate change is not hardwired into the human brain. It doesn't have to be that way. It was manufactured. And it was manufactured by um, an alliance between fossil fuel uh, companies and conservative think tank groups who just kept pumping misinformation into the public from the early 1990s and gradually polarised the issue. Yeah.
1: It's, it's an interesting thing that I, I, I wanted to ask you anyway because this is basically a real conspiracy by the, the fossil fuel industry. And in the book, you compare them to the tobacco industry that was uh, previously doing the same thing, basically uh, spreading misinformation and casting doubt on the different issues of things that uh, science had a very clear understanding of. And yet they managed to completely uh, 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 stir up a controversy uh, about tobacco. So this is a real conspiracy, uh, if you like, but how can we counter conspiracy theories that are, are absolutely unsubstantiated when there are these real conspiracies in the background and we want to shed some light on those as well so is it very difficult and how how can it be done to to distinguish between the two things
0: that's a really good question and the answer uh, will be in the conspiracy theory handbook coming out in April okay <laughs> oh.
1: looking forward stay to that stay tuned <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, but, uh, I mean, it's not a secret. There is, there is uh, literature on this, and it's actually, uh, Stephen Lundowski has published extensively on the issue of conspiracy theories, on the fact that while there are real conspiracies, such as the tobacco industry being convicted in a court of law of um, conspiracy to defraud the public, mm-hmm. on the other hand, you have baseless conspiracy theories and how do you tell the difference between the two? Uh, there are telltale traits of conspiratorial thinking. Uh, and in the mm-hmm. Conspiracy Theory Handbook, we outline those traits and contrast them with the traits of actual real conspiracies. And it's it's really mm-hmm. looking for those telltale traits that um, is, is a good guide for people trying to make sense of all this. And it really um, follows on from the approach of the Cranky Uncle book, which is about introducing to people the traits or the techniques of denial and by understanding those techniques you can become inoculated against them similarly you can become inoculated against conspiracy theories by understanding the different um traits of conspiratorial thinking
1: yeah it would be a great note to finish on but i i'd I'd like to ask you something else obviously when it comes to climate science We cannot forget this latest movement started by Greta Thunberg. How do you see that? So do you think the message gets through properly or it should be coupled with some kind of uh, inoculation technique, the things that you outline in the book in order for it to be successful in the long run?
0: When people ask me, what can I do about climate change? The answer I give is break climate silence. Mm -hmm. There is this, Mm -hmm. as as I've mentioned earlier, there's this um, pervading climate silence where even people who are concerned about the issue don't talk about it with friends and family. Uh, And that has a spiraling effect, this spiral of silence where you, you don't hear other people talk about it. You think that they don't care. And then you're even less likely to talk about it. Conversely, uh, if we can start these conversations, then it it builds social momentum. And the key to addressing climate... The only way to avoid uh, the worst impacts of climate change is to transition our society from fossil fuel-based energy to renewable energy. And the only way we'll do that is through social momentum and political will. And so we need to... um, build that social momentum through conversations. Now, Greta Thunberg and um, uh, the school strikes that are happening all over the world have been extremely effective in building these conversations and building social momentum. So I I think the importance of her contribution and the contribution of the movement at large that she has sparked cannot be underestimated. I think that they're crucially Mm -hmm. important. And I have the highest admiration for her. I just think she's
1: fantastic
0: and she's a hero.
1: I think we all agree on that.
2: I have a question that we maybe we should have started with, and this will test your pedagogical skills here. Could you explain in just a few paragraphs why climate change is happening, how we know that it is happening, and how we know that it is man-made? Uh, okay,
0: that's a good question. How do we know global warming is happening? because we see tens of thousands of warming indicators all over our climate system. Not just thermometers measuring surface temperature. We measure heat building up in the oceans. We measure sea level rising all over the planet. We measure ice melting all over the planet. And we see tens of thousands of species being impacted by climate change, either migrating towards the poles or migrating up mountains to get to cooler areas. So the signs of warming are everywhere. As for how do we know that the warming is caused by humans rather than some natural cause, we also see human fingerprints all over climate change. We see these telltale patterns that can only be explained by human activity and actually rule out natural causes of global warming. For example, we measure less heat escaping out to space at the exact wavelengths where greenhouse gases like CO2 absorb heat. And so this specifically fingers carbon dioxide as the cause of all this heat being trapped in our atmosphere. We see that the the atmosphere is warming at, at the surface, but cooling in the upper atmosphere. And that's a very telltale fingerprint of greenhouse warming. If other factors like the sun were causing global warming, we would see warming happening all the way up the atmosphere in the lower and the upper atmosphere. We don't see that. We see cooling at the top, warming at the bottom, and that rules out the sun and confirms human causation. All right,
2: that sounds very convincing. Did I pass the pedagogical <laughs> test? I think I think you did. I have nothing <laughs> I have no objections to your explanation.
1: And if uh, someone wants to find out more, actually much much more, basically everything you can find online about uh climate change and climate science uh from a skeptical, a truly skeptical point of view, not the popular climate skeptic concept is what i'm referring to here but the proper scientific skepticism kind of approach so if you wanted to, to want to find out the real science behind it go to skepticalscience.com mm. because it's an amazing i i have to congratulate you on this john because that and not only you i know it's a, quite a large team at least according to the website uh where where you list the people that you work with it's amazing it's an amazing collaboration and uh One of the things that strikes me every time I look on the website, and I look at it quite often, uh, occasionally we we do uh, use material we find there as well, is just a counter that is counting how many Hiroshima atomic bombs of heat have been accumulated in the atmosphere since 1998. That is just a mind-blowing number. Who came up with that comparison? That that thing. That is a good question. I know that James Hansen, the the
0: NASA climate scientist, was using the atomic bomb metaphor for for a long time, and uh, I think he used to quote like, uh, you know, like something like a hundred thousand atomic bombs per year, or I, I exact I forget the exact number. So he may have been one of the originators, if not at least the popularizer of of the term. Um, but um, myself and some of my skeptical science colleagues, such as Dana Nuchitelli, we just did the arithmetic and worked out how many per second. And at that time, the data indicated four atomic bombs per second of heat were building up in our climate system. And all we wanted to do was debunk the myth that global warming had stopped, mm-hmm. um, mm. which, which deniers were, arguing since the early 2000s. They were saying that 1998 was the hottest year on record and global warming hasn't stopped since. But the, what the, the data shows, when you look at the whole climate system, is the heat continued to build up um, over that period where, deniers say, global warming isn't happening. And the greenhouse effect hasn't stopped. The laws of physics still applied after 1998. And uh, global warming continued and so we found that communicating the sheer amount of heat building up in our climate system i think i forget the number something like 120 trillion joules per second uh, was it, like in physicists call that a really really big number so it doesn't really mean anything to people but
1: it's definitely a number that you cannot wrap your head around actually so yes it's, it's, uh,
0: but four atomic bombs per second was a very sticky way of communicating the the physics because it's simple, it's um, unexpected, which is often um, a way of landing it in people's minds and helping them remember it and uh, and it's it's concrete it um it's it's just a very effective way of communicating that global warming is happening and on this this grand scale,
1: yeah, but I have to say that there is another piece of work that uh, has similar characteristics it's very clear, it's very engaging. Uh, and that is the book Cranky Uncle versus Climate Change. Yeah. Uh so I do recommend the book. It's a, it's a very good read if you want a couple of hours of fun uh while definitely learning something. Yep. Even if you're quite knowledgeable about climate science, people you have to find it out find, find the book. It's uh available for pre-order on Amazon, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. If
0: you go to crankyuncle.com, there's a link to the Amazon page where you can pre-order mm-hmm. it. And also, um, you can uh, just sign up to get Cranky Uncle News because not only is is the book coming out, but there's also updates about the game. So anyone who wants to um, um, be kept up to date on, on what's happening with the research, like I'm doing a lot of research into using cartoons to debunk misinformation and communicate climate change, Uh, and um, book events or the development of the game, all of that information you can grab at crankyuncle.com.
1: Yeah.
2: okay and it's available as a kindle book as well right yes it will be um in fact oh, I, well will be when it comes out yes, yes I, I sent all the files over to the
0: publisher a couple of months ago so i'm guessing that they're doing their technical wizardry and converting that into an ebook
1: amazing great all right so it was great having you on the show thank you very much for joining us today and congratulations on all the great work that you've done so far And good luck with what's coming up. Thanks very much for having me on the show. It was great to talk to you both. Thanks a lot. It was very interesting. You're welcome back anytime. And uh, keep up the fantastic work. John Cook, thank you very much. Thanks a Mm -hmm. lot. Thank you very much. Goodbye. See you later. Yes, I hope our listeners found it as useful and uplifting as uh, we did. Mm -hmm. But I think even though... This means that we have to resort to a bi-weekly uh, regular episode, just like in the old days. I think these uh, these interviews are absolutely worth skipping the regular episodes for, mm-hmm. because uh, these people are amazing and what they do is, uh, is very important for all of us.
2: Yeah, it's great to catch up with all the skeptical activists out there and hear what they're doing, all specializing in different areas and doing fantastic
1: Work. And I do encourage all our listeners to get in touch. If you know someone uh, we should interview, uh, there are lots of people doing amazing work out there whom we probably don't know about. So Mm. if you know of a person like that, uh, please send us information about them and probably contact details. Or if you have any suggestions, uh, topic suggestions, ideas as to what we should cover, what we should talk about, uh, please let us know. So uh, Mm. get in touch and you can do it on... uh, our website where you can find a contact form or you can send us an an email directly to info at theesp.eu or tweet at us at espodcast underscore eu or find us on Facebook. Absolutely. It's a good thing if you like our Facebook page and follow our Facebook page, but you can send us a message as well.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you really want to help out, uh, please go to patreon.com slash theesp and join the increasing number of people who are supporting us with one or two or three dollars per episode. It's We really
1: appreciate it, and, and it helps a lot. Indeed. Thank you very much to all of you who have already done so. But uh, this concludes the show uh, for this week. Uh, thank you very much, Pontus, for joining me. Thank you. Thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so and until next week. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Wieslat. This, <laughs> this has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the esp.eu. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schwab and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.thesb.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu, and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. An independent weekly show in support of European level actions with the skep sca- <laughs> Understanding of Uh sorry, so a science head of uh, of things that cli- cli- <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>